0: Hi, my name is Maureen Conway, I'm Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program at the Aspen Institute, and delighted to welcome you to this video discussing uh, changes in the gig economy um, as part of our Working in America discussion series. The Economic Opportunities Program, we explore promising policies, strategies, and ideas to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in today's changing economy. In particular, we look at opportunities to connect people to work and to help them uh, connect to better jobs and find uh, better livelihoods in today's fast-changing world of work. In addition, we look at opportunities for people to explore entrepreneurship and ownership of business assets as an economic opportunity strategy. Uh, for over five years, we've been hosting the Working in America Discussion Series here in our offices and the Aspen Institute. Um, and in the Working in America Discussion Series, we've been looking at a wide variety of issues that affect today's working people and how, um, how businesses, policymakers, and others can uh, find new ways to organize work in ways that work for business, work for workers, and help more people build successful, sustainable livelihoods in today's economy. I'm delighted to uh, welcome you to this conversation on the gig economy, uh, which really looks at a number of ways um, that uh, today's world of work has become a little bit less secure, a little bit more uncertain for many working people, but also offers some new opportunities. And we brought together an interesting set of experts from business, from policy, from academia, that are really looking at it from all the perspectives, from the worker perspective, from the business perspective, from the public policy perspective, to really think about how independent work can be organized to be good work and also um, to be part of a really thriving uh, and growing economy. So we're really delighted to bring this conversation to you to to look at these issues um, and think about opportunities for creating better work. We are very grateful to our supporters in this series and very much thank the Ford Foundation, Prudential Financial, and the Walmart Foundation for their support of the Working in America series. We encourage active social media participation in all of our Working in America dialogues, and we encourage you to comment on the conversation that you see today using our hashtag TalkGoodJobs.
1: I want to start by asking our panelists. Um, you know, who are we talking about when when we say gig workers? Um, you know, Lindsay, you're in a unique position uh, because you you've been a gig worker. Uh, you've researched this area, so you really have uh, the ground covered. So, could you lay out some of the things that you've learned? Tell us about your experience and um, you know what it's like making living uh, in this type of work and what it's like to have an algorithm as a boss.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I've been uh, driving for the ride and companies for on and off for the past two and a half, three years. And I've also interviewed about 100 drivers. And I've been following them for three years. Um, so I want to say it's tough. I felt like it was definitely tough to earn my, my daily uh, bread. But it also gave me a lot of flexibility. And you guys have probably heard that. You know, I could schedule it around when I had papers to do or classes to teach or things like that. And some of my big findings, so one is this idea, like what do you do when you have an algorithm that you report to as a boss yeah. and like not a human? And I find that folks have these sort of tactics about how they work with the algorithm, but they don't even call the algorithm an algorithm. It's the Lyft made me do it, or I was just talking to my app. So there's like this anthropomorphizing of the work where you think of it as a person, as a, even though it's actually a platform and actually a bot that is responding to you. And so the tactics people have with the algorithm is, you know, they can sort of just follow it. So if there's a surge going on, they're going to drive to the surge. But then they can also deviate. So some folks think there's a surge going on. That means there's going to be too many cards there. So I'm going to go the other way than the surge um, is going to tell me. And then most cleverly, the, the last set of tactics I call sort of feigned acquiescence. It's where people are pretending to do what the algorithm is telling them to do, Mm -hmm. but they're actually not doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's imagine if your boss says, like, you're, asks you what you're doing, and you say you're working on a report, but really you're on Facebook or you're about to go out and like play some golf or some tennis. Mm -hmm. And the funniest example actually came up the night that Trump was inaugurated. It was a driver that I interviewed here in DC. And he was getting all these ride requests, telling him to go down by the White House. And he's like, I don't want to go down there. There's hundreds of cars. I'm not, It's going to take me forever to pick up somebody. And I'm not going to be able to take them you know, to where they want to go. I'm going to be stuck in gridlock. And so he is driving up 16th Street to try to get away from the White House. But the, the app keeps on pinging him to go to where the inauguration is at, because this is where all the people want rides and he doesn't wanna hurt his 100% acceptance rating because you know, high ratings not only keep you active on the platform, but it's like this sense of pride. And so he has these standoffs with with customers, that would be us in the room, where he keeps on accepting rides, but is going further north up 16th Street to Silver Spring, with waiting for the customer to cancel the ride. That way, his 100% acceptance rating is indeed. <laughs> so that's a little bit about what happens um, when you have an algorithm as your boss. You know, sometimes you listen, sometimes you don't, sometimes you kind of find a way around it. And I'd say the other big finding around my work is why do some people feel empowered and some feel exploited, even though they're doing the exact same type of work? And it's probably, if you've read some of the public press pieces, some folks demonize the gig economy, and some is like, oh, there's flexibility, now you can work on the beach anytime you want. So both are true. And uh, the, the what I, I'm finding that's sort of driving, how do people do this interpretation, empowered versus exploited, it depends, one, on your career biography, so what type of work you've had before. So if you're a first-generation immigrant to this country and you're sort of expecting to sort of start at the bottom of the ladder and work your way up, and maybe you also did lower skill lesser-paid work in your country of origin, you're more likely to feel empowered. So it's based on career biography and your expectations of the future it would make you feel more empowered. Now, if you're sort of in the middle, you know, you've maybe always been doing sort of low-skilled work at Walmart or McDonald's and you're like, nah, this is better. But you're kind of like, all right, like neither empowered nor exploited, but you're kind of in the middle. But the folks who tend to feel the most exploited are folks, of course, who have been laid off from more, you know, higher paying manufacturing jobs or from even sort of like pink collar work and they're trying to stop downward social mobility. And this is not the way they were expecting their life goals, their American dream to be planned out. Mm-hmm. And those are the folks who are usually feeling a bit more exploited. Okay. All
1: right. Well, thank you. Yeah. That's... Now, I want to turn to Josh. Um, you run a platform for hospitality workers to pick up shifts at restaurants, bars, and hotels. So I'm hoping you can contrast a little bit here. Uh, you know, How did you come up with that idea? And what drives your business and workers to use it?
3: Great question. Thank you. Uh, from our perspective, it was really driven by choice. The demographic that hire caters to is one that wants the choice to work where and when they wish based on the availability and their schedule and based on the skill and the time that they have, which are two assets that we're able to unlock. Uh, assets, by the way, that don't require you know, a, an expensive down payment. These are things that we own. And so, you know, we really started it based on that idea of choice and focusing on a worker that loves aspiration. Uh, The idea of hire is born out of wanting to earn extra money, but not so much for the cash, but more about what can that extra cash do for me? How can I aspire to move up a level or two in life by earning a little additional income this month in a hospitality business or a retail business that might need some extra staff because there's an event in town or it's a, a big football weekend or there's just a seasonal spike in retail. Mm-hmm. And the people gravitate from a worker perspective to our platform for that very reason. And from a business perspective, it's because there is a need. There, There's tens of thousands of businesses that are using platforms like ours because they need to access people in a way that they're unable to, because there's such a ridiculously shallowing labor pool. And they need to access people that, frankly, want and choose to work in this type of environment. And so it's either adapt or fall behind. And, and that's why you know, we're finding success in hospitality and retail. Sure.
1: I'm curious, have you ever done any type of gig work?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, gig work, it's interesting. You started by talking about how long gig work has been around. Gig work has been around for decades. We just now in the last couple of years actually refer to it as something called gig work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was freelance or independent contractor work, whatever you might be. And it's been just shy of a decade now that really the rideshare type platforms have made it uh, prominent. I've done Gig work. I've worked as an independent contractor for many years in my professional life pre-hire, uh, and you know certainly see the benefits and the pitfalls that come with it, and that's helped support us as we've built out a sustainable platform today.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Jake, um, you know Prudential.
1: You you work on the products for independent mm-hmm. workers, and Prudential produces a lot of great uh, research about um, this space. Can you tell us how this work intersects with Prudential's uh, broader focus on financial wellness and what you've learned about the types of uh, people that do gig work and why?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as we think about financial wellness, just to level set on that, it's really about how we can make uh, people's lives better by solving the financial challenges uh, that you know, exist in, in a changing world. And as we think about the, the gig economy or independent workers, a lot of labels for it, it's really through that lens of how can we uh, help people with their financial wellness. And everyone's different in that regard. And as we've studied the, the rise of the, the gig workforce, one of the things that you know, we, we've identified is that there's a lot of different ways to, to label it and call it. And people think uh, very differently about it, but it's very personal to them in terms of what matters and why they do it uh, and what their objectives and goals are. And it's really about the type of work they do, as opposed to, I'm a 1099 worker, I'm a freelance worker, uh, what have you. So as we think about the financial wellness challenge and opportunity, it's really about how do we access uh, the quote-unquote gig workers uh, and provide solutions that are relevant to them and what's most important for their needs.
1: Excellent. Have you ever done gig work?
5: I have. Tell I have. about it. Uh, consulting. Yeah. Um, so really getting out on my own and um, being my own boss and uh, generating clients and uh, trying to uh, to make it that way learn uh, learn a, a lot uh, to Josh's point it really helps uh, as um, I'm doing this type of work now excellent
1: and I want to bring in Libby uh, your work at the Aspen Institute focuses on uh, portable benefits for workers and you think a lot about what businesses and policymakers in the field um, sh- should be thinking
3: about in the
1: what do you see as the challenges between the current policy and um, the changing nature of work as we've been discussing here.
4: Yeah, you know, I think um, our work in general focuses on addressing some of the challenges that workers and businesses face uh, as the uh, the nature of work has been changing in the United States and looking at creating economic stability for workers today and tomorrow. And, you know, when, when we take a look at um, some of the potential policy solutions, in this area in particular, you know, we do see independent work being a prevalent form of work in the United States today. And as we uh, explore ways to to address that, we're looking at the ways policymakers are responding. And we see that happening in kind of five key areas. Um, We see some policymakers responding by trying to address wages and pay uh, in the gig economy Mm -hmm. with some important sort of steps taken recently at the city level in both Seattle and New York. Happy to talk a little more about those later. Uh, we do see benefits, uh, as Maureen sort of framed in her opening, uh, as an important economic stabilizer for families, and uh, are looking increasingly at ways that we could extend uh, portable, prorated and universal benefits to workers in the gig economy, and see policymakers in a number of states uh, advancing policy proposals along these lines. Uh, protections, Worker protections, um, including those um, currently- Uh, available to W-2 or more traditional workers, like uh, policies around safe workplaces and protection from harassment and discrimination is another area where policymakers are starting to sort of move things forward. Um, As well as worker organizing um, is a place where policymakers have begun to explore ways to advance, um, whether it's new worker organizing models or extending um, traditional models to new types of workers. Um, And I think that is especially important, as Lindsay was saying, in the context where in the gig economy you do not necessarily have a human as your boss um, or you're you're working for an algorithm. Um, Organizing may be particularly uh, compelling as a solution. And finally, there are policymakers coming from a variety of different perspectives uh, who are looking at classification, worker classification, um, and will frequently sort of talk about Quality um, as they look to shift the line in the sand uh, between employees and independent contractors with a, pro- potentially a different definition of quality. So, some may be thinking about um, increasing flexibility as being an attribute of quality, and others may be thinking about increasing stability as an attribute of quality. But uh, we do see sort of policy responses in those few areas. And I would just say, overarching, there are a couple broad challenges. One is just that. Um, p- the policy framework in which work exists today didn't necessarily contemplate the existence of the types of business models we see today, so I think that is just a basic challenge um, which policymakers are struggling with um, and looking to sort of address and, and close that gap. In um, the other pieces, you know, I think this uh, uh, speaks uh, to the, the nature of hire's business model but we do see um, a a range of supplementary earning strategies in the workforce today, and we aren't necessarily doing a great job of capturing or counting supplementarity in earnings, and we may see um, policy frameworks sort of failing to uh, address supplementarity, in part because we're just not counting or capturing it well enough.
1: Mm -hmm. I want to kind of stick with this idea of whether gig work is a, potential source of stability by evening things out for workers, or if it's a destabilizing force, or it's probably both, right? So, so, Josh, please tell us, you know, what have you learned about the challenges workers face in the industry where you operate in terms of managing their financial lives, and what draws workers to the hire platform?
3: You know, interestingly enough, the challenges that we see gig workers have are uh, very similar to many of us in this room. It's about budgeting and savings and recognizing that uh, you don't want to end up with too much month at the end of the money. And it's, it's especially with the demographic we cater towards, which is that in the 19 to 27-year-old range, uh, it's really a learning experience for them. And that's where it's exciting when you see the type of work that Prudential's doing because it's about education and giving workers in the gig economy the supports and the tools they need to budget effectively and save appropriately for, yes, things like taxes, uh, retirement, but also just what we've all experienced, rainy days, uh, downtime in terms of business levels. You know, we, uh, we flew yesterday to Washington from Toronto, which was in the midst of a crazy snowstorm. And it was amazing how many businesses in the third largest city in North America just shut down yesterday, just shut down. And so you think of being a worker, be it a W-2 or a 1099, for that matter, and the earnings that you anticipated getting that day are now no longer there. And so rainy days happen. I mean, it was a snowy day. But mm-hmm. um, I think you know I touched on it briefly. The taxation piece is certainly important. Workers in the gig economy are responsible to declare their income and file their taxes. Uh, And many of them are used to the withholdings that come with a W-2 job, Mm -hmm. be it because they're working in that type of a space currently, and they just don't know what they don't know. And so part of our responsibility as a responsible platform is to educate them and give them the supports they need to to hold back those funds. Mm
1: In my reporting, I, I've talked to many workers who have said, you know, I took this job not because I think it's going to pay me a lot better or that I like to work a lot better, but that, you know, I wanted the benefits, right? I, I need, needed the stability of health I was worried about my retirement. So that kind of brings into the discussion about, well, should we be thinking about portable benefits? And so Libby, I know this is an area that you study closely. So tell us tell us about that idea of portable benefits and how do businesses and the government think of it the same or different.
4: So, <coughs> excuse me. It's at the end of a sinus infection. I won't. I'll try not to spread it around. Um, portable. The idea of portable benefits um, is sort of captures a number of different ideas. But in general, portable benefits models share three core attributes. The first is that they're portable, which means that individuals can uh, take them with them from job to job, and that they're connected to you as an individual and not connected to your employer. Um, as sort of a primary point of connection. The second attribute is that they are prorated, which means that um, contributions to uh, benefits funds can be made uh, on an on the basis of hours worked or other um, sort of productive unit. Uh, whether that's a, a trip in the case of rideshare or a task in the case of um, some other platforms, uh, and and that multiple employers can um, could theoretically support these benefits. Um, either at the same time or over time. And then the third attribute is that they are universal, which means that they are uh, available to workers regardless of the type of their work arrangement. So this is a concept that the term portable benefits is quite new, uh, but there are programs and models that have existed for decades that share these three core attributes. I mean, Social Security is a program, shares these three core attributes, especially after some important reforms opened that program up to most workers. Um, the Affordable Care Act is another example of a portable benefit which has extended um, health benefits to people outside of the employment relationship. Um, and then there are other models that are uh, a little more specific to this type of universe. I think there I'd point to the Black Car Fund in New York, which is a program, it's a legislatively created program um, through which drivers, um, for hired drivers, can access workers' compensation coverage in the event that they become injured on the job. Um, so, and that's a program that's been around since 1999, which to me feels like it should be recent, but that's actually, you know, a 20-year-old program. Um, so, um, those are a few examples of some portable benefits programs. And I think, you know, we have been engaging with people, stakeholders around the table on this issue, whether it's worker advocates or businesses, policymakers, and everybody sees um, their challenges a little bit differently. So. You know, I think worker advocates on behalf of workers um, experience, as part of gig work, a fair amount of income volatility. There may be schedule volatility, which may be self-imposed, but um, drives that, fuels that income volatility. Um, And so people may be looking for stability. In the business category, I think, in general, we hear people talk about churn in their workforce and a desire to um, have an opportunity to retain, have a mechanism to help retain workers, um, which, uh, providing uh, contributions to benefits might, might um, help answer. And then policymakers in many cases are thinking about sort of long-term economic stability, um, th- whether a lack of benefits might cause pressure on public support systems um, and other, other issues. So there may be um, different sort of motivators that are bringing people to the table and, and causing them to sort of circle around this idea as an interesting one. But um, it does seem to be an idea uh, where there is at least some consensus. Um, but of course, the devil is in the details. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so when you're when you're going to be talking to your to your students, um, you know what do they need to know about this emerging area of the mm-hmm. economy, and and what's your what are you going to be teaching them?
2: Yeah how about I I start really basic about how about their their everyday behaviors now and how that affects drivers. Because I did focus groups with uh, both students and sort of rank and file consumers uh, in a few cities across the United States. And there are little things that we don't do that could have, a that, or little things we do or don't do that have a big effect for the drivers. You know, one obviously is saying hello and goodbye and not slamming the car door. You wouldn't imagine like how many times that does not happen. I mean, most people have their headphones on, like I'm guilty, so it's like, people wouldn't even talk to me when I was a driver. So I'd encourage students to do that, to keep their music at a reasonable volume, to not flirt with the drivers, because it puts them in an awkward situation not try to buy drugs from their drivers. That also <laughs> creates a um, very awkward situation that happens a lot. Uh, can you can you tell me where's the best place to get XYZ? I have no idea. And then and then lastly students tend to ask their driver to do things that um, that puts it, So I'll give you the examples of if you have five students that want to go to some party across town and they all want to get into the car, but they're not five Mm seatbelts. And so they're really sort of pushing the driver to get in that fifth person because they don't want to get a second car. Mm -hmm. And that puts the driver in a difficult situation because so many of them will say, some of them can say no to the groups of students, but then they'll get dinged on the ratings or the students will sort of make complaints that will get the driver in trouble that the complaints aren't true but they're upset that they're not getting right. what they want but then you the driver you know what if he acquiesces and puts all the people in the car and then they're in an accident like there's mm-hmm. so many sort of like you know trickle-down effects or sort of snowstorms so it, I, you know I would just ask students to be wise mm-hmm. in sort of their everyday sort of consumption of these sure yeah.
1: and as these students uh, you know aspire to become managers how do you think you know they you know t- 2019, Will be thinking about how the gig work might relate to their maybe traditional business, as opposed to you know someone maybe ten years ago that wouldn't even have considered that. Well, the do you think the uh, is the mainstream business now thinking about how they should be engaging in, in gig work uh, or, or with gig workers differently than they may have in the past?
2: Hmm. Maybe so. This definitely feels to be something that's on everybody's mind. Like so many times we talk about Uber and Lyft and Juno is that they are the gig economy. And sort right. of we were talking before how there's so many other companies mm-hmm. that make up gig work. But it seems like ride-sharing, maybe because it got there, or ride-hailing mm-hmm. got there first because it, um, for whatever reason, it just sort of punches above its weight and yeah. how the size is. But I think some of the things I, I'd like us to be in conversation about is folks are sort of being you know, good consumers of these is that so much of this talks about this type of work as supplemental income. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you've got a full-time job and now you've got this gig plus and you're earning extra money. Right. But in most of the drivers I talk to, that extra money is like not to go to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Like it's to pay child support, it's to pay utilities, it's to buy medicines or their kids summer camp. So these are actually this is actually money that they're dependent on. Mm-hmm. So I feel like by calling it supplemental so casually, we're diminishing this type of work and how important it is. And if you look at the folks, I'll stick with the ride sharing industry because it's what I know the best. Most dri- I mean most drivers it looks like sort of consistent from all the surveys are doing this for some sort of extra income. So they are mul- multiple gigs or a full-time job. But if you look at the majority of work that's actually being done on the platform, it's by folks who are doing this for a full-time job. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be really careful as you're sort of balancing this conversation and not to have one voice outshine the other. Because even though most of them are doing it for this additional income that they're dependent on, the majority of the work is by folks who are doing this, you know, Full time or full time hours, full time hours
1: plus. Now, Jake, I want to ask you, you know, about the the products that that Prudential is working on, and and how how do these products that you might market towards
5: uh, gig workers differ from you know your traditional work? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things. Again, as we think about financial wellness, uh, a main part of our business is in the workplace, so delivering traditional. Uh, benefits like disability or life insurance or retirement solutions to employers who make those programs available to their employees. Uh, we need to think differently. Uh, it starts with really understanding the, you know, the individuals uh, that fall in the, again, in quotes, mm-hmm. category, and what are the things that are you know most important to them. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of something that uh, we launched recently, which we call Covered, As we did in-depth interviews with uh, this population, one of the things that, um, and Josh mentioned it, um, that we found was a a main pain point was just saving for taxes. Mm -hmm. The awareness that it needs to be done, uh, that someone isn't doing it for you, and the discipline to do it. Similarly with time off, Mm -hmm. time between gigs, smoothing the income. Uh, So we launched something called Covered that uh, individuals can go, and it automates that process of, as I get income in, money moves into an account that's saved for taxes, pay time off, that type of thing, as well as the ability to make uh, insurance and retirement product available as well to the individual. So at least there's an access, there's an awareness uh, for that. Now that may not be for for everyone in terms of uh, buying life insurance, for example, through the platform, but our starting point is trying to replicate what would exist in an employer-employee relationship in a traditional sense, uh, by giving the awareness and then giving access. And that's one of the the challenges is access to some of these programs that people otherwise would get in that employer relationship.
4: I think there's a whole variety of behaviors and solutions that um, we see in the marketplace, some policy approaches as well, um, the context for some of these solutions. You know, I think we, over the last few years, certainly have seen kind of an explosion, a proliferation, at least, of um, different types of solutions that have emerged from the nonprofit sector. So, for example, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, um, their labs division, which is their innovation unit, uh, did a lot of deep work to understand some of the financial stability challenges faced by domestic workers and have uh, created a product called Alia, whereby a a household that employs uh, a home cleaner can begin to p- pay into a benefits fund for that that cleaner um, to be able to, to draw down uh, paid time off and certain other coverage products um, so that's an example of something coming from the nonprofit sector I think we see a variety of um, solutions kind of coming out of the the kind of startup innovation space um, as well as established companies looking to serve a market segment that is relatively underserved when it comes to sort of benefits access. Um, We are also looking at the fact that it's not just access um, to some of these these products. I mean, anyone could theoretically start to set aside money in a savings account to save for retirement, but part of what makes employer-based retirement savings compelling is that there's also an an employer contribution. So there are some legislative proposals that we are tracking closely that um, engage the employer or employer, uh, which I will put in quotes because that is a legal term, it's also a plain English term, which just means somebody who hires somebody to do something, Um, but that engage employers in contribution to support benefits. Um, And I think the couple uh, uh, examples that I would point to, uh, represent two different approaches to extending portable benefits to gig workers. So one idea is to build a whole new model um, of access to benefits for gig workers for independent workers. Uh, and I think the, the idea that best exemplifies that is in Washington State. There is a piece of legislation that creates um, a, a mechanism by which platforms or labor intermediaries or uh, the language has changed over the last couple of years as the bill has evolved, but It allows a company like Uber, for example, to um, contribute to a benefits fund for individuals who are doing gig work um, and provides uh, a set of governance requirements for the type of entity to be an administrator of those benefits, um, which uh, is all written in a way that is very pro-worker and it sort of envisions as one type, um, a worker representative organization as the administrator. Of, uh, of benefits of that type. I think another approach is um, taking a look a little bit more incrementally, maybe benefit by benefit, or looking to open up benefits that exist to, uh, to new types of workers. And there, I think, a great example um, is the recently passed piece of legislation in Massachusetts regarding paid family and medical leave, which, um, under that bill, uh, if a company has a workforce that is more than 50% independent contractors, they are treated as an employer for the purpose of contribution to paid family and medical leave coverage. It's still an opt-in for the independent contractors themselves, whether they want to, to draw down um, on paid family and medical leave, but it recognizes the fact that if, if there are businesses that are requiring that are re- relying uh, heavily on independent contractors as part of their workforce, that um, they are going to sort of face employer-level obligations uh, when it comes to funding this type of social insurance.
1: Everyone in the audience is a a consumer and a voter. You can pick one. What policies should the audience members encourage their elected representatives to work on uh, to address the issues of gig work? Or uh, the other question would be, are there uh, consumer practices that the audience members should consider if they're consumers of the services provided by independent workers?
3: Go ahead. You know, from our perspective, we've been talking about it on the panel today. Certainly uh, policy around portable benefits is key to not only our business but others and and to the longevity of workers in the gig economy. We recently put our support behind uh, a a, uh, policy that's being reviewed right now by the Texas Workforce Commission that would... Provide clarity for workers and for companies like Hire around portable benefits, and uh, excited to see where that leads. It's a lightning round, so I'll move quickly. Thank you.
4: Excellent. I think I would encourage folks to um, urge their policymakers to take a look at the gig economy, not just for what it is today, but for where it may be pointing us. Um, and there, I would point for, point to two things in particular. The first is the degree to which the gig economy is sort of spreading into and influencing hiring and um, workforce practices in more traditional sectors of the economy. And the second is um, just taking a look at you know some of the platforms that we've been talking about here today are also actively investing in technological development that may dramatically reduce or obviate the need for human labor over time. And here I'm thinking about autonomous vehicles, I'm thinking about sidewalk delivery robots, I'm thinking about commercial delivery drones, um, and other technologies which may really change the game. So as much as we see these platforms having sort of um, dropped a, uh, a drop into the pond that has had ripple effects, we may yet see another set of changes um, of similar magnitude as some of these technological developments um, become more sophisticated and and to the extent that regulatory environments um, adapt to uh, permit them uh, passage.
5: Thank you. I'm going to go with the consumer question. Please. Um, So I think as a consumer, be aware of the worker you're engaging with and what's behind either the platform (laughs) or how they get their work and understand how they're treated, what are the opportunities for them, and uh, having that knowledge I think is important as you make your choices as a consumer day-to-day.
2: I'll take the consumer angle, too. This was not Uh, (laughs) pre-planned. You know, I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to be an ethical consumer of these sort of companies, uh, particularly because I use Amazon Prime like it's nobody's business. And to be fair, I, I don't have a, a good answer right now. I'm still pondering. But it's this idea that you know, he was bringing up around sort of kindness and to your worker, whether it's saying hello or goodbye, tipping.
1: Libby, are labor unions par- part of the solution here?
4: You know, I think uh, there, as, as, as much variety as we see across the types of platforms, we also see a variety of different sort of um, feelings about portable benefits from the world of sort of traditional organized labor. Um, I will say that the-the model that's being advanced, uh, as a legislative proposal in Washington State, um, has strong support from SEIU, uh, locally, and, um, that conception of portable benefits does place sort of, uh, the worker representative organization potentially at the center of an administration, um, approach for benefits. So it provides an opportunity for a worker representative organization. To earn revenue from the provision of benefits to a member base. Um, so there, there are some who think about um, the future of labor and look at portable benefits as an interesting model to consider. Um, and uh, there are others who have a different set of feelings. Sure. I think it's fair to say.
1: <coughs> Short of a former labor former labor unions, are there like associations? Are there worker groups, and are, are they a spot where, um, you know, some of these this, this information and education could happen?
5: Yeah. So uh, one I'm uh, familiar with, which just launched back in November, is uh, IPSE, I-P-S-E, which is uh, Independent Professional Self-Employed. It's an association that is really focused on advocacy for independent workers as well as the procurement of some of the benefits we've been talking about today. Uh, so that when someone uh, joins as a member, they're they're automatically getting access to life insurance, for example, and some other benefits. So, again, trying to uh, replicate as close to it as you can that uh, traditional employer-employee relationship. And there are others that are out there. uh, And I think it's, you know, a space where there's a lot of interest where somebody can step into, uh, you know, sort of a quasi role of an employer but, you know, uh, be... Uh, aware of, you know, all the things that come into play with that. Sure. Lindsay, is there space for 50 plus workers in the gig Academy?
2: Yeah, so both the I'll address both the 50 plus question but also what you're getting out of these informal organizations. And you see a lot in the online space very informally supporting drivers. There's a really popular blog that's run by Harry, the ride-sharing guy. And you know, he posts almost every day, but there's like are you earning the money that you're supposed to be earning? ways to sort of increase tip amounts uh how to you know giving advice about how to put car seats in your car like very practical information that folks need and then also on the Facebook groups there's back and forth um where sometimes drivers can notice there being problems in the apps like people are not being paid enough when there's like a new incentive policy that's putting on and folks sort of talk about that before in these informal groups and then New York City has a driver's guild that's done a really great job I sort of Talked about sort of how they're having the porta potties at JFK, and they've helped lobby for the higher wage. So you're seeing these sort of informal organizing um, mechanisms coming up.
1: Libby, can you address that that last point about is there uh, is it the rare exception where folks can get these types of benefits and make this a career, or or is that becoming more of an opportunity? Uh,
4: You know, I think. In general, we have seen over time a, a sort of significant shift of risk and cost from organizations to individuals. And we have seen companies um, sort of pu- pushing t- certain types of workers outside of their corporate boundary, engaging people as a service instead of as um, as a direct cost, and you know the the gig economy sort of is. An extension of this, or has the potential to be an extension of this trend, and you know, when we think about portable benefits, what we are looking to solve is the benefits gap that has sort of begun to exist in the face of this change to the to the nature of work and the nature of corporate organization. Um, and you know, I think when we look at independent contractors specifically, which Are many of, but not all of, even the online platform workers. Again, getting to all the sort of nuance that is unfortunately (laughs) sort of part of this conversation. um, We we do see that uh, the rate of sort of benefits uh, coverage for people—it's not just access. Again, it's coverage. People who actually have coverage by benefits—it's sort of there's sort of a steady downward trend to the right when you shift across a spectrum from a traditional full-time role, to a part-time role, to a contractor role, to an independent contractor role. So that doesn't comment specifically on the gig economy platforms, but we see that across the whole workforce and having happened kind of slowly over time.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, and that piggybacks to the question that was asked earlier via Twitter about whether or not job quality could be declining, and I mean, the macro answer is yes. Like you can go from the very early days of the turn of the century where you have these more humane forms of Early, more humane forms of work. You know, Henry Ford wanted to pay workers $5 a day. And sort of as more and more risk is being shifted from the organization to the individual, job quality is eroding, particularly for lower skilled and more medium skilled jobs. So there can, of course, be outliers for specific companies like what you're seeing at Hire high, at or the Hire app. But I think on a broader level, this is sort of a big concern
5: that folks care about.